Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hanukkah, the eight-day festival of lights, is a celebration of resilience, the power of faith, the freedom to worship. It's actually quite meaningful for the Jewish people, especially this year when attacks against American Jews rose at least 80% in the month of May alone during the conflict with Israel sparked by terrorists in next-door Gaza. With me to discuss the significance of Hanukkah, how that has evolved over the years, and how to make it an even more powerful experience for our families and communities are three of AJC's modern-day Maccabees, warriors in their own right. Melanie Marin-Pell, AJC's Chief Field Operations Officer, Julie Raymond, AJC's Senior Director of Policy and Political Affairs, and Holly Huffnagel, AJC's Director for Combating Anti-Semitism in the U.S. Ladies, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. So, Melanie, Julie, I don't know about you, but I was in my daughter's Montessori school earlier this week, armed with a squeegee bottle of grape jelly and some donut holes to make Hanukkah meaningful for four and five-year-olds, a majority of whom are not Jewish. So I'm, I did, I admit, I added my own two cents about the Maccabees victory, but I'm pretty sure it went over all of their little heads. But I'm curious, as Jewish advocates and mothers, how do you make Hanukkah meaningful for both your little ones and for adults that you encounter in your day-to-day work? So I'll kick things off. So I'm the mom of a seven and a half year old, and he is really at the age where he's starting to appreciate what it means to be a minority. You know, he's starting to have that sense of how come we don't get off school for Hanukkah? And he's starting to ask me those questions. And how come more people celebrate Christmas than Hanukkah? And last night when we were lighting candles in particular, I was Um, I was really moved myself. I think he thought I was losing my mind a little bit, but uh, I was telling him, this is what Jews around the world are doing tonight. We are practicing a tradition that goes back thousands of years that is so, so special because we are Jewish and what a blessing and a gift it is to be Jewish. So I'm trying to help him understand that, yes, we may be part of a community that is not the, the cultural norm or mainstream, but that what we have and what we have to celebrate is truly beautiful. And if I may, I will tell you a quick story that I cannot get out of my mind because it's something that happened this morning. Um, I was invited to speak here in Louisville, Kentucky, where I live, to a Rotary Club. One of my, my neighbors is part of a Rotary Club. And I was talking about the Jewish community, and I was talking about some of our traditions, and I was talking about, you know, about anti-Semitism. And one of the questions I was asked was by someone who was not asking with hostility, but he asked me the question, do you think that Jews sometimes bring on discrimination onto themselves by being so upfront about your Judaism? And I had to take a deep breath and say, we are keeping up traditions that go back thousands of years. And it's related to what I was thinking about what I teach my child. And I'm proud of being Jewish. And I would much rather be visible than invisible. And so I think that, you know, our celebration of our holidays, our understanding of the importance of our holidays, our Jewish pride, is so fundamental both to us as individuals, but also to teach our children. Wow. That is, I I don't know that I would have been able to keep my composure 
Melanie, <laughs> in that moment, I would like to think that I could. It's an honest question, right? I mean, he was asking an honest question. Julie, I'm curious if, if you had take a different approach than Melanie. I have a three-year-old and a just barely six-year-old. And if you'll forgive me, I want to also tell a little story just to start out with, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. AJC has a partnership with an organization of European young Jewish professionals. The organization is called UGIS. And each year they hold a summer program bringing together young Jews from all over Europe. And one year I had the privilege of representing AJC and teaching a few sessions on advocacy. I say few because there were only a few sessions at all and lots of summer fun. And I asked the organizer, who was a very serious, savvy advocate, why is there so much fluff? And she responded that it's been really hard to be a young Jew in Europe. And they wanted to remind people that there's also joy in being Jewish. And recently I realized, and I hope this is the sign of the times and not a comment on my parenting skills, but in my household, we talk much more about anti-Semitism than we do about Judaism or Jewish culture. Um, not appropriate for a three-year-old and a six-year-old, <laughs> but I remember that summer experience and what she told me. And so this year, intentionally, we've been really focused on bringing the joy so we're playing a lot of dreidel. We're watching a lot of the David Diggs Puppy for Hanukkah video um, and really just trying to have fun. There has been a lot of David Diggs in our house, which is probably not a wise choice on my part because my son really does want a puppy for Hanukkah. So <laughs> it just exacerbates Risky. that. <laughs> but but you do, you you raise a good point. There is so much joy in the Jewish tradition. And, and Hanukkah is one of those moments, one of those times of the year when we really should play up the joy. You know, Holly, not to put you on the spot, but you are tasked with leading AJC's efforts to combat anti-Semitism, and you are Christian. Um, growing up, celebrating Christmas, what was your understanding of Hanukkah? I mean, was it Christmas for the Jews, or did you understand it as much more than that? And at, you know, at what point did you realize this is actually a festival that, that marks some of the earliest efforts by Jews to defend the freedom to worship. So my best friend growing up was Jewish. So I may have had a slightly greater understanding of Hanukkah than other non-Jewish American children, but I do think I saw it as a Jewish Christmas. And I remember being envious when I was little that my friend got presents for eight days and I only got presents for one. And I actually asked my parents about, you know, more days for, for, for presents. Um, but now, you know, I, I know more about the history of, of the holiday, even how it's celebrated in the United States, um, both Christmas and Hanukkah, you know, became increasingly commercialized uh, in the United States, especially in the 20th century with lights on our homes and, and decorations. And I know many Jews who also have lights on their homes, decorations. Uh, you see the, the elf on the shelf has become Minch on the bench. And a lot of this is for, for children, for children to celebrate um, these, these holidays to, together. Um, but now, you know, removed from those younger years and today in the, the field of combating anti-Semitism professionally, Hanukkah takes on new significance. It, it really wasn't until much later um, in my life, in the last 10 years, that I really learned what Hanukkah meant about the, you know, the rededication of, of the temple after the Maccabean uh, Jews regained control of Jerusalem. And I think about what the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs uh, said about Hanukkah when he noted that the Maccabees' victory was actually short-lived. And within the century, you know, Rome took over. And he said this, and I'm quoting him here. He said, yet Rome's civilization declined and fell. 
while Jews and Judaism survived. Something in the human spirit survives even the worst of tragedies, allowing us to rebuild shattered lives, broken institutions, and injured nations. That is the Jewish story. Jews survived all the defeats, expulsions, persecutions, and pogroms, even the Holocaust itself, because they never gave up the faith that one day they would be free to live as Jews without fear. That is the ever-renewed power of the faith whose symbol is Hanukkah and its light of indistinguishable hope, end quote. Um, so, so that's something that I've taken on on now. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the, the kind of the traditional toast for any Jewish holiday you know, we we overcame, we fought, we overcame. Now let's eat. <laughs> now let's now let's celebrate the joy of the holiday. You know, Holly, you wrote a lovely column earlier this week. Recently, we have been talking about the joy. What are some of the positive developments in the fight against anti-Semitism? I mean, what what progress has been made? Let's just say in the past year. Absolutely. So. When we focus on anti-Semitism, I think especially as we've seen it rise in the United States in the past few years, it's easy to kind of go into a mode of despair and, and really only focus on the negative. And there is a lot of negative, but there are places to be hopeful. We know now from our report, from our, our surveys that we, we released in October, that American Jews actually feel more secure in America today than they did a year ago. So while 43% felt less secure in 2020, that number has declined to 31% uh, feeling less secure in 2021. That's still a big number, but that, that's a good trend. Uh, there's also greater understanding of the term anti-Semitism by the general U.S. public this year. So while 34% of U.S. adults um, s- still are not familiar with the term anti-Semitism, and that is still a problem, but that's an improvement over the 46% of U.S. adults who were not familiar with the term last year. Uh, In addition, today, more Americans recognize the statement that Israel has no right to exist as anti-Semitic. So in our 2021 report this year, we found that 85% of U.S. adults said that that statement is anti-Semitic compared to 74% who said it last year. And this year, we also saw new resources made available to enable better reporting of anti-Semitic hate crimes. So the Jabhara Hire No Hate Act was signed into law this year, this past May, and it now links hate crime reportings to Department of Justice training and grants and resources. And so we're really going to be able to close those gaps, hopefully, uh, in the future. And then just two last hopeful points, uh, if I may. I think, one, we do need to actually look to Europe for some hope. And Julie mentioned talking about young European Jews and and joy, Um, but in the fight against anti-Semitism as well. When AJC first started raising alarm bells in Europe about rising contemporary anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism decades ago, we really were met with a lot of resistance um, by by government leaders and policymakers. And we can say that today, um, that that's really not the case. There's still challenges, but we can look to the appointment of the EU coordinator on combating anti-Semitism, Katharina von Schnurbein. We can look to the fact that the majority of EU member states have all adopted, have the majority have adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance, uh, the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism. There was a 10-year strategy, a, a, an action plan just to combat anti-Semitism that the European Commission published uh, just a couple months ago. And there were pledges uh, that happened at, in Malmo, in, in Sweden, in October, governments around the world pledging specifically to combat anti-Semitism. So, so that's hopeful. And then the very last thing I'll mention is actually some hope, a hopeful sign at the United Nations. And I realize that when I say that there's glimpses of hope within the UN to fight anti-Semitism, it, it may raise some eyebrows, but there truly is. And our Jacob Blaustein Institute is actively working with, with, with many people, but specifically with UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Dr. Ahmed Shahid, uh, to combat anti-Semitism as a human rights problem and connecting those two, anti-Semitism's human rights issue 
and Dr. Shahid's report, which we were able to contribute greatly to, to the UN General Assembly actually documented all of this in detail. So those are a few pieces of good news, Manya. Um, and of course, the last thing I'll say is that the, the hopeful signs should not by any means be replaced with complacency. We have to continue to be, to be vigilant. Yeah. You mentioned Katerina von Schnurbein. She was a guest here on People of the Pod just a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Shahid has been on the, the podcast as well. Um, yes, both of those, uh, both of those figures are, are really working very hard uh, to fight to fight anti-Semitism around the globe. Julie, you've worked very hard to fight anti-Semitism on Capitol Hill. What progress has been made in that arena? It's such a good question. And as Holly said, one of the biggest challenges that we have in combating anti-Semitism is simply the awareness of anti-Semitism. Elected officials in the United States now, probably more than ever in recent memory, understand the real and present threat of anti-Semitism. Our elected officials are the first line of defense. And so it's critically important that they understand. And, and we can sort of look at it impact here as well, that there are more than 150 representatives and 58 senators on the bipartisan task forces for combating anti-Semitism is amazing. They've all recognized the problem and they've committed themselves through membership in those task forces to be a part of the solution. That's huge. Well, you know, Holly also mentioned the No Hate Act and the, and the passage of that earlier this year. And that was a long time coming, right? I would love to be able to take this moment to talk just about like the strength of coalitions, because it really was this amazing collaboration between Jewish groups and Asian American groups and Muslim groups and Latinos and African-Americans and really a full swath of American society who, who recognized that they and their friends and neighbors could be victims of hate crimes. Um, but I think, sadly, it was the reality of hate crimes in America um, and the fact that every time people were turning on their news, they were seeing um, you know, in various spikes throughout the year, um, huge numbers of hate crimes against Asian Americans, against Black Americans, against others. Um, so sort of that in-your-face recognition really probably was what brought it to the point where it could actually be passed. But the beauty is that those coalitions endure. Melanie, you oversee a lot of the, the local work on the ground in places like you said, Louisville, Kentucky, right there in your backyard, Dallas, Texas, Beverly Hills, California. What progress has been made on the ground around the country that, you, that you've seen this past year? I think you're going to sense a theme. We recognize and we understand that the first step in combating something is making people aware that it exists, making sure they understand what it is, how to define it, how to identify it, and then what to do about it. So we're spending a lot of time through the great work of our AJC regional offices across the country, working closely with Holly and Julie and their teams to try and make sure that we are part of the awareness raising from the very local level all the way up through the state level onward to members of Congress and beyond. And we understand that. So as Julie mentioned, we're seeing the awareness being raised because AJC and many other organizations, but certainly AJC, are working hard to make sure that our elected officials and civic leaders at every level really understand what's happening. What we know is that much of the inaction is simply because they're not paying attention and they're not aware of what's happening. It's not necessarily nefarious. So it is our job to make sure they are aware. It's their job too, of course, but we are there to help make sure that they understand the reality of the problem. They understand the complexity of the problem. They um, hear our 
our ability to describe the many sources of anti-Semitism. We're not blaming any one particular corner of the population for anti-Semitism. We're saying this is a problem that takes many forms. It's complicated and you need to understand it. And that if you do understand it, you will also understand how it connects and becomes almost a harbinger of other ills that exist within our communities and society and other forms of hate. So what we're doing in order to help make those changes is we are out there presenting our survey data and our AJC resources and tools across the country, both at the very local level. So to city councils, to mayors and their staffs, to state legislators, to um, various civic groups, to community groups, to Jewish groups even around the country so that more and more people are aware of the problem, are aware of some of these alarming statistics and are talking about it. And then we're able to say, we have some important tools. As Julie mentioned, the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism, which we believe is the gold standard of definitions of anti-Semitism, is something we have seen with our encouragement and advocacy mayors, city councils, state governments, different bodies, municipal bodies, adopting this definition and saying, we understand that this definition will help us define and identify and understand anti-Semitism more fully. So I want to ask you this, Melanie. I mean, it's not apathy on the part of these mayors, right? I mean, mayors are dealing with, you know, keeping the water clean and the the sewers working and the streets uh, free of potholes. I mean, they've got more of immediate, acute <laughs> concerns to worry about, a, a plethora of them in their in their municipalities. So how do you get through all of that and make them aware and help them make this a priority? So one of the conversations we've had a lot is, helping them understand a little bit more about Jewish history and how, while we may exist in their communities as a community that they view as highly educated, by and large, fairly affluent, comfortable, you know, working in a lot of the professional class, all of the, you know, sort of generalizations one might make about many in the American Jewish community, although certainly not all. We want them to understand that our history has taught us that our situation in any given place is precarious and that it is vulnerable and that we can't ever let our guard down. And that we have seen time and again throughout the millennia that Jewish communities that were very comfortable suddenly find themselves in an extremely hostile place. So therefore, it is incumbent upon all of us and we need our leaders to lead to make sure that not even a whiff of it is allowed or acceptable or ignored or brushed under the rug, that we need them to be out front. Most of the mayors across the country are really trying to find ways to create, make their cities good places to live for everybody. And one of the ways they can do that for the Jewish community is helping the Jewish community feel like they're with us and they're paying attention and they're aware of our concerns. Mm -hmm. And Julie, I kind of want to flip that question a little bit and, and turn to you and ask, How do you get through all of the politics in Washington to make them aware? I don't think it's so different with members of Congress as it is for for the mayors, as Melanie described. And one of the things that sometimes we forget is that our election officials at the end of the day are, are, are people too, really busy, busy people, but they're people. And I think what we found in our survey about the American population 
um, also applies to a lot of our elected officials, right? So in AJC's most recent report on um, anti-Semitism in America, we looked specifically at how people saw and and recognized the uptick in anti-Semitic attacks this past May after the conflict with Hamas and and Israel. And for Jews, we felt this acutely, right? We were watching the media reports of Jews being physically attacked in Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere. 71% of American Jews said they heard a lot or some about those attacks. But most Americans, 53%, said they hadn't heard anything. They didn't know what was going on. And it's really important for us in in advocacy and in life to sort of step outside of our boxes and say, you know, we know this, right? Like we know what's happening to Jews just in the same way that we know Jewish sensitivities. We know the tropes and the triggers that will will make our hair on the back of our our neck rise and say, ooh, that's anti-Semitism, like Melanie's experience at the Rotary Club this morning. Uh, but most people don't know that, right? So a part of our, our advocacy in, in life and in work is simply raising that awareness, raising that education. So you mentioned the report. And um, Holly, I, I want to turn to you again. I know this is shine a light on anti-Semitism, but let's take a darker turn and, and talk about some of the more discouraging findings in that report that Julie just mentioned. So, Manya, there were unfortunately discouraging findings. I think we expected it, but we were, um, you know, our our, our own awareness was raised even more by what we we found. So a few of these unfortunate findings, uh, one was that we found that one in four American Jews, 24%, have been the targets of anti-Semitism in the past 12 months alone. Really digging down just in the last year, one in four American Jews have have been targeted by anti-Semitism. We also found that four out of 10 American Jews uh, have changed their behavior at least once over the past 12 months out of fear of anti-Semitism. That included, you know, not not posting something online that would identify them as Jewish, um, uh, uh, not identifying themselves as Jewish or revealing um, like how they might, might think about as, as Jews. It also um, made avoiding certain places. Another discouraging finding was that, you know, Americans see anti-Semitism in America. We, we found, we rec- I think I, I was personally surprised to, to learn that 41% of Americans have seen anti-Semitism in the past year, and 31% have, have seen it more than once. And yet, only 44% of the U.S. general public believe that it's actually, you know, increased in the past five years. So the, the Americans are seeing anti-Semitism. There's a disconnect, whether they're, you know, aware that it's increasing, whereas we know that 82% of American Jews believe that anti-Semitism has increased. But I think what matters is, is what we do with those. Like, what, what do we do with those discouraging findings? How do we then combat anti-Semitism using these findings? And for, for AJC, that really you know, means data-driven advocacy. So it, it means using our data about how Jews were targeted by anti-Semitism on social media to encourage Congress to reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, again, to, to work to hold uh, large tech platforms liable when their algorithms are proven to promote harmful content. It means going to the tech companies themselves, you know, showing our data and saying, you know, we, 
we really need you to adopt the universal standard of what anti-Semitism is. And you need to have consistent uh, artificial intelligence and human moderation. And you need to make your technology more humane and, and more user-centered. It, it means taking our data to private businesses, right? And ensuring that their, their DEI framework recognizes Jewish diversity and that anti-Semitism is seen as, as more than a religious bias. Uh, companies, you know, they're aware of the connection that most Jews around the world have to Israel, either historically, religiously, or culturally. You know, they'll be able to more successfully promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace and, and not discriminate against Jewish employees. So our data can be used in so many different ways. Um, and so even though it's discouraging findings, it's, it's really what we do with the findings um, that that's going to matter. You know, I'm thinking about like the one of the realities is, and it really speaks to what Holly was saying, is there is not one answer here. There is not one panacea. There is not one silver bullet. We know that we need to engage elected officials. We know we need to engage political leaders, but we also understand that's not the be all end all. We, of course, understand that. We need to be doing this at every level. We're engaging our coalition partners. We are engaging the media. We're engaging social media. We're engaging young people. We're engaging diplomats. We're really trying to say across the board, we want to raise awareness about the reality of anti-Semitism, the definition of anti-Semitism, um, the, the many ways in which anti-Semitism can manifest. And it it is absolutely a marathon, uh, not a sprint. Think about if you work and you are in a in a in a workplace with you know, any number of employees, what sort of training is offered in your company or your firm or your organization? And if you are doing any kind of, um, you know, mindfulness or diversity training, you know, many, many, many companies are doing this now, exactly what Holly just said. Take a look at the curricula, what is being taught um, and what is not being taught and how do we, how do we address that? So we all have a role to play here. And again, there is not one magic silver bullet. So it's a very good point, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you for making it. And, and Julie, I wanted to, to ask you again about you know, the, the dynamics of Washington, D.C. I mean, you were there for the recent vote on Iron Dome, whether to replenish that defense system for Israel. You were there when an environmental group, Sunrise, boycotted a a voting rights event because Jewish groups that support the existence of Israel were participating. I mean, truth is, the Hanukkah story isn't a pretty one either, right? It's not really a story about peace on earth and the miracle of everlasting oil. It's a story about this brutal battle in which the temple was desecrated and nearly destroyed and then this miraculous triumph of a of a small band of believers over tyranny you know how can that complexity be useful in educating people about the situation in the middle east and and really just the importance of israel's mere existence in other words can we use the hanukkah story the good the bad and the ugly of it as an advocacy tool to fight anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism? Good question. First, I'll say that I love that Hanukkah is this amazing early example showing that Jews are not now and have never been a monolith in terms of opinion, right? Because for as much as it was a battle between the Jews and the Syrian Greeks, it was also this battle between the assimilated Jews and the zealots. Um, the Maccabees, like the the four of us, I guess. Um, <laughs> and and we've been talking a lot about the the IRA working definition on this call, and I think it's worth noting that while I think it's universally accepted that anti-Semitism manifests in lots of ways, from the far right to the far left and, and everywhere in between, 
even the Jewish community in America lacks unity in terms of how to define anti-Semitism. The, the, you know, talking about the old adages, two Jews, three opinions, um, it's something that we organizationally support and push. And a lot of the other organizations in, in part of the Shine the Light campaign are pushing it. Um, but it's not universally accepted even by all Jews. Um, so there, there are battles within as much as there are battles without. Um, but more to your question, because you talked about Iron Dome, um, I think we need to be really careful always, not just in this conversation, but in every part of our, our advocacy and our work, to not equate anti-Semitism with legitimate criticism of Israel. Um, that said, the Iron Dome debate in the House was particularly ugly. And I think Jews, many Jews across America felt like an unwillingness to support Israel's missile defense signaled a, a viewing of Jewish lives as expendable, like Jewish lives mattering less. Um, so while it was a vote about Israel, those lines were really blurred for a lot of people. Um, and unfortunately, we're still fighting for Iron Dome funding. The, the House vote is done. Thank goodness it passed. Uh, but it's held up in the Senate now, and we're nearing the year's end where there's a government shutdown looming, and this funding hasn't gone through in the Senate. So for everyone who wants to know what can I do, one thing that you could do um, is go to ajc.org slash fund Iron Dome, and you can send in 30 seconds a quick note to your senator saying, please, swiftly pass Iron Dome support. I'm thrilled that you mentioned that. I mean, I'm a big believer that there are so many ways of being Jewish. I've written about this. I've talked about this on the podcast. I mean, yes, I'm so glad that you, you brought that up, um, that the Maccabees were one kind of, <laughs> uh, of you know, they had one particular kind of, of way of practicing uh, Judaism, but it really was about you know, the, the diversity within um, our tradition. Melanie, I'm curious if you have any uh, thoughts on, on just how to use, again, that complicated Hanukkah story as a tool for advocacy. I love what Julie said. And I think the, the idea of peoplehood um, and the complexity of peoplehood is so important. And I agree that this is an opportunity for us to utilize the Hanukkah story to help people understand that. One of the challenges we have is that people don't, don't understand the Jewish community. They don't understand the notion of peoplehood. They don't, when we say we are a nation, we are a people, that we were a people without a land, that does not make a lot of sense to most people who don't really understand much about Jews. Therefore, um, they will wrongly think that anti-Semitism is a re- merely a religious bigotry, an anti-religious bigotry. When we know that anti-Semitism, sometimes it is about the religion, whether it's, you know, the sort of classic Christ killer kinds of um, tropes about Jews, uh, but that our, our fundamental sense of peoplehood and identity is often what is being attacked and that they don't understand that our connection of, to Israel, for many of us, again, I don't speak for all of us, um, but for many of us, it is absolutely endemic and intrinsic to our sense of Judaism and Jewishness and peoplehood. And so for many, they think, well, if I'm criticizing Israel, I have no problem with Jews practicing Judaism. I just think Israel shouldn't exist, or I think Israel is the worst place on earth. They don't understand the connection for us because it is part of our peoplehood, and they don't understand how that feels when we hear that. 
Um, the battlefronts keep coming. Uh, you know, the aggressors keep challenging us. But zealots that we are, we will persist. <laughs> hey, Monica, so, can I say one more thing really quickly? And please. On please. that point, because it strikes me that we are coming at this with a sort of a nuanced understanding of what the Hanukkah story is. But the reality is that the Hanukkah narrative is not really about the fight at all, right? Like it's not about the massacres. It's not about the bloodshed, the sacking of the temple. It's about exactly what happened after, right? It's about the miracle of the oil lasting for eight nights. And and the fight is sort of this weird prologue that's often overlooked, if not ignored. And maybe there's a lesson there, right? That like, it's not about the perils that we're enduring um, because those will, will continue to exist in almost every generation, but it's about what we do after, right? Like it's about what is that next step and how do we, that I, I'm belaboring this, this analogy, but like, how do we continue to shine our lights? Like, how do we hold on to that resilience that kept, has kept us and our traditions alive for so many centuries? Thank you so much, ladies. Really appreciate all those those wonderful thoughts. Melanie, Julie, happy Hanukkah. And Holly, I hope you have a fulfilling Advent and a Merry Christmas. It's From Egypt to Babylon, the Holocaust. Inquisition would pivot us to the pogroms. Yeah, from the Greeks and now in Rome. Yeah, but we fight back to light that fire. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us for this special Hanukkah edition is rapper Nissim Black, who just launched his Hanukkah tour here in the States. In fact, he helped light a menorah in my backyard, Montclair, New Jersey, earlier this week. Nissim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, Nissim, your spiritual journey has been quite circuitous, to say the least. You were not raised Jewish. You found Judaism. But only after exploring Islam and Christianity as a teenager in Seattle, can you share with our audience what led you to the Jewish tradition? Well, there were many different things, but I would say the biggest thing is that, first off, it starts off with the person, right? Sometimes it's like, what type of person are you? One thing that I've come to learn about myself is that I crave authenticity and I crave the root of things. I always try to figure out, well, where did this come from? Where did it all start? And being that first I was introduced to Christianity and Islam, my whole thing was always, every time I got to a certain place where I felt like, okay, I maxed out in sort of my knowledge, I always start to feel like, well, what was before? What was before? So I think it was really just a natural um, thing that I had to start digging up and looking. And one of the most beautiful things that I started to see was that everything started to consistently point back to Har Sinai, pointed back to Mount Sinai and the Torah and the giving of the Torah. You know, you can't go without it. And I think the biggest thing for me, watching the relationship between the Jewish people and God, like, Everybody was messing up the whole time. Now, here I am in my life. I'm a screw-up professionally, right? So I'm seeing everybody messing up over and over and over again inside of the text, and I'm reading the story, you know, with the brand-new eyes, and I'm realizing to myself that, listen, God accepts mess-ups. The whole entire book is all about the failing of the Jewish people and that God said that even though you've done all of that, I will never let you go. So I really sort of fell in love with the God of Israel through his relationship that he had with the Jewish people. You launched your tour this week. As I said, you'll be in New York on December 6th, Philadelphia on December 9th. Where else will this tour take you? Uh, We're going to Dallas. We're going to Phoenix. We're going to L.A., San Diego. I'm going back home to Seattle. 
all the way to as well as my, my real home, my new home. So I'll be all over Manchester. I'll be in London. We're going to a lot of places, Boston, Baltimore. We have quite a few places that we're going to. Sorry if I didn't mention you, but we're coming. How long is the tour? Certainly more than eight days. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole tour spans over a month, but I'm taking a break to come back home. I do have my beloved wife and six children at home. And I told my beloved manager, who's not married and doesn't have children yet, that this is a must for me to come back home. So I will be coming home for about two weeks, a little under two weeks in between the tour. And then we're going to go back out uh, for the West Coast. So, But all in all, it's a little bit over a month, the whole tour. Okay. And tell us about Eight Flames, the song out of many that really talks about Hanukkah. Walk us through the lyrics. So Eight Flames is a song that is really near and dear to my heart. Now, most people, you know, when they do the Hanukkah song, you like perform it on Hanukkah. Like that's the time. I perform this almost every time I have a show because of, you know, its meaning and the power of the lyrics, which honestly I can't take credit for. These all came from above because I was just writing and didn't know what I was going to write. And when I started thinking about Hanukkah, most of the time people think about the time to be basimcho, to be happy, to be joyful. Joyful, and I really use it as a time to reflect. I always say that Hanukkah is my Chag because my name is Nisim, Nisim Black. It's the darkest time of the year. I was born in Kislev, also too. Zion Kislev was my birthday, so I feel very much so connected to it. But when I thought about it, I think about like emotional electricity and the whole entire idea of never again. And I really felt like it was appropriate to write the song from that standpoint of talking about look at all of what we've overcome as a people and that Hashem has got our back and we'll show the world and we're going to keep shining our light very, very bright. So that's really what the whole essence, I think, of the song was, is talking about the pogroms and, and, and Mitzrayim and everything that we've been through. And at the end, Basof, Hashem is going to bring and illuminate us for the whole entire world to see. So it was really, really a song of what I would call Azaz Dikdusha, very spiritual, holy brazenness. Nissim, thank you for helping us celebrate. If you want to see Nissim perform live, he may be coming to a stage near you. And he also has a podcast called The Deal, which has featured some really interesting conversations. But for now, we're going to wrap up our show with the music of Eight Flames. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. So we make it eight days, eight nights, and we call it eight flames, eight nights. We light a flame for the summer We light a flame. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 